uh, Christians should be the happiest people on the planet. Do you agree? I mean, we really should be the happiest people on the planet. It doesn't mean that bad things don't happen. It doesn't mean that we don't get angry or upset or, or have um, you know, junk to happen in life. There's not sorrow or grief or those types of things. That, that stuff happens. We, we go through those things. But how do we as followers of Jesus Christ respond in those situations? And I hope that somewhere deep within, there's this joy that's stirred up from within. That's the gospel at Christmas that we're talking about. Last week we started a study in Luke chapter 2, and I just want to refresh our memory. The angel says to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of what? Great joy that will be for all the people. So I believe we should be a joy-filled people. Last night, uh, I was um, at the hospital in Birmingham with um, some folks who are very, very close to me. I love them dearly. And uh, so, standing at the bedside of this, um, this elderly gentleman who has been through a pretty rough uh, story. His last decade's been tough, but this last few weeks has been really tough. And... Uh, so bad, in fact, that unless God changes the course of things, he's only got a little bit longer. Um, and I just thought, you know, I'm looking around the room. There's tears everywhere and uh, people very sad. You got a woman who's been married to this man for 45 years, uh, about to lose her husband. You've got children to this man who love him dearly, grandchildren in the room who uh, are, are just struggling with the the pain of loss and grief. And that's right. Everything about that is right. I mean, it's, it hurts. You know, death is hard. Uh, it's not easy. It is, it is one of the clearest pictures that uh, our world is broken and that uh, sin still has residual effects. You know, we, we can't miss that. You know, when people die, it's just, it's like, wow, okay, this is this is what sin has accomplished for us in this life, is that this, death, suffering, loss, it's painful. So all of that's going on in the room, and then in the midst of that incredibly sad moment, uh, I look over, and this grandson um, walks over to his grandfather, and he leans down to Pa, and he gets close to him, and he kind of whispers in his ear, and you're talking about a man who's got tubes coming out of his body, and he's fairly non-responsive and hasn't, hasn't been responding for a while now. And this grandson leans down and puts his face close to his granddaddy's ear and he says, are you excited? And I watched as that shell of a man mustered the strength through all the medical tubes and things to sort of blink and smile and nod. Yes, I'm excited. And I thought, you know, that's great joy. It's the kind of joy that presses through the deepest kind of hurt. It's the kind of joy that supersedes sorrow and anger and pain and all the things that sin brings into this world. Jesus conquers all of them. It's the kind of joy that says, I know I'm dying, but I know there's better ahead. 
And this Christmas, I want us to remember that Jesus came to bring you that kind of joy. He came to bring me that kind of joy. And the Bible says he came to bring all people that kind of joy. Anyone who would receive him can have that kind of joy. That's what the angels announced and declared at his arrival, at his birth. They declared that he is the source of joy. So uh, to honor God's word, why don't you stand with me? I'll let you sit for the rest of this, but to honor his word, will you, will you stand with me and let's just read uh, the story, the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased father would you help us to see what it means to be joy filled people Um, not just happy people but joy filled people open our eyes to see that Today, in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Every person is pursuing happiness. Every person wants to be happy, right? Every person wants to be happy. Famous philosopher Pascal, he writes um, these words are kind of startling, but this is what he says about our pursuit of our happiness. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it. It's the same desire in both, attended with different views. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. It's a pretty startling ending. But I want us to think for a minute how pervasive is our desire for our own happiness. I mean, it, it's, it creeps into every decision that we make. And I'm, I'm saying to you that it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, we've been coached to think that we shouldn't pursue our own happiness. We've been coached to think that your joy or your happiness is a bad thing. That's selfish of you. We've even probably preached a phrase like this in our churches where we've said, you know, God's not as interested in your happiness as he is your holiness. Have you ever heard a phrase like that? Well, I would tell you, that's not entirely true. You see, God sees your happiness as your ho- and your holiness as an intersection. He believes, and the scriptures teach, that you will be happiest when you are holiest. John Piper says it this way. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So your supreme joy is the point where God is supremely glorified. Now, none of us would argue that God doesn't want his supreme glory. 
God does want His supreme glory. He wants all people everywhere to worship Him. He just knows that's where you're happiest. So I would contend to you that God wants your happiness more than you do. You're too easily satisfied. And God's saying, I want you to want me because in me, you'll find real fulfillment. You'll find real happiness. Those things, that stuff you keep thinking is going to provide you with joy and happiness that it doesn't. It's empty at the end of the day. That stuff is going to be empty, but I want you truly happy. So here's the thing. If every man wants happiness and God wants every man happy, truly happy, what's the problem? Think about that. If every one of us is in pursuit of our own joy, our own happiness, and God is actually saying, I want you supremely happy, what is the problem? How is joy, how is this happiness so elusive? And I would say there's two reasons. Two reasons joy and happiness is so elusive. One, we're looking for it in the wrong places. True joy is only found in Jesus, but we are constantly looking to empty and broken cisterns to provide for us and satisfy the desires of our soul. Jeremiah chapter 2. If you have a Bible, find, find Jeremiah. He's a prophet in the Old Testament, right, pretty much right smack in the middle of your Bible in most cases. And Jeremiah, his, uh, his name actually means weeping prophet, and so he's kind of got some sad sermons. Um, uh, he's he's, a, he's a, a tough preacher to listen to. He's not always proclaiming good news is what I, what I mean, but in Jeremiah chapter 2, God is saying he's not happy. God is not pleased with his people. And here's the problem. He makes it very clear in chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 13. And, well, in verse 12, he says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. In verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken sisters, cisterns that can hold no water. So here's the thing. One of the main reasons why joy is so elusive is we're looking for it in all the wrong places. We're trying to make ourselves happy with stuff, with things, with success, with accolades, with the praises of men. And all of these things are fleeting. It's like trying to pour water into a basin that's full of holes. It just leaks right out the bottom. It's, it's a broken cistern container and it cannot hold your joy. Your joy will not be sustained in the stuff of this life. It's all emptiness. Um, king Solomon, the great wise King Solomon, uh, wrote a whole book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes to tell us this truth. He says, if there's anything you think that will make you happy, be it wealth, be it be it women, be it love, be it riches and fame and fortune and castles and mansions and clothing and all of food. All of those things that you think might make you joyful and satisfied. This is the one motive of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. This is what he says. I've searched the world over. If there was anything to make me happy, I've tried it to its fullest extent. And you know what he says? What I've discovered is this. Everything is meaningless. 
That's the whole premise of the book of Ecclesiastes. He makes that statement like four separate times. I've discovered that everything is meaningless. And the point is this. It's the same point Jeremiah is making. We are looking for satisfaction, soul satisfaction in all the wrong places. Stuff of this world, success. You can climb that corporate ladder. As soon as you get to the top, there's another one. You get to the top, there's another one. You get to the top, there's another one. You can buy that new car, but next year it's going to be an old car. And you'll need another new car. You can buy that bigger house, but it won't be big enough. You get where I'm going? Every pleasure this world has to offer you, Solomon says, is empty. Jeremiah says it's a broken cistern that can hold nothing. But God says, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. It's not just that you come to me and pour your stuff in and it won't stay there. I'm telling you, I'm the source. I'm the one out of which living waters of joy are flowing. I'm the one who's supplying all of your joy. True joy is found only in Jesus and we're looking in all the wrong places. There's a second reason um, why joy is so elusive. And I would say it's because we have a very real enemy. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, right? But he talks about an enemy. He says, but there's a thief that has come to do what? Steal kill and destroy. So here's what I would tell you is that there is a thief, a very real enemy who is actively stealing your joy. The imagery came to my mind this week. Uh, You know, a a thief is just, I don't know, I just have a hard time with a thief. The imagery came to my mind this week that, uh, you know, you you're driving along, you pull up your car, and you're, you're, I mean, your life is just so full of joy. Your, your car is so gassed up with joy. You put that thing in park, and you go inside, and little do you know, the enemy is out there, opened your tank, stuck that little pipe in there, and he's siphoning out all of your joy. Every time you put it in park and you go to do something, there's an enemy who is stealing your joy. He's siphoning your joy. So we have a very real enemy. Two, two, two warnings about your joy. Two reasons it's elusive. One, we're looking in the wrong places. And two, we have an enemy. So be on your guard against the enemy. Fight for your joy. Fight for joy. Make a statement that I think will encourage you. Hopefully. Hopefully. Joy is not optional. In the life of a believer, joy is not an option. God commands your joy. He commands your joy. Um, I'm studying this week. I love doing word studies. Some of you like this as well because I've done a little bit of, just very little bit of Greek with you and some preaching and you, some of you come and you're like, I love that. Tell me the Greek words again. And that's awesome. So let me give you a little bit of Greek. You ready? All right. I'm going to get you to say these words. Joy is the word kara. Y'all say kara. Kara. I like that, Jay. Good job. Joy is the word kara. And it means 
a deep, glad satisfaction in your soul. That's kara, joy. All right, there's a word that's very closely related to that, that they're used kind of a a lot in sync, and it's this word for grace, which is the word charis. Charis, grace. If you you know somebody named grace, this this is their name, charis. And here's what grace means. It means getting something you don't deserve. It's something you cannot earn. You you can't fight for it. You can't make it happen. It's given to you. You know, Christmas time's coming. You're going to get and receive gifts. That's what this is all about. Charis, it's a gift. Grace is a gift. But do you see the similarities between kara and charis? Same, Same root. There's a third word I want you to see, and it's this one. Rejoice is this word. Kairos. Kairos. You see how closely related these three words are? Now, the word rejoice is the imperative of the word joy. So it's the command form of joy. It's like me saying, be joyful. Be happy. Be glad. Rejoice. So when we sing, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, when we sing that, it's a command. I'm commanding you, be happy. I don't know if you've ever tried that with your children. (laughs) I have. Uh, It's tough, right? It's perplexing, right? When you go to command an emotion, that's perplexing. Uh, But God does it all the time in the scriptures. And this word rejoice is in the Bible all the time. He's like, be happy. Rejoice, be glad. And this is not the only emotion that God commands. You know, God, actually, Jesus says the greatest commandment is what? Love. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is like it. It's what? Love your neighbor as yourself. How? Wait a minute. If God is commanding my love, is it genuine? Is it heartfelt emotion? If I obey, think about this. This is a bit perplexing, isn't it? Because uh, maybe, maybe with your kids, um, you go through this. I find myself playing referee all the time in my house. My girls are fighting over a Barbie doll or something. And uh, they're, they're messing, pulling hair and all that's going on. And I'm, I get in, that, in the middle of it. I'm like, hey, whoa. Say you're Sorry. Sorry. And it's like, try again. Mean it this time. Sorry. (laughs) Have you ever been there? How do we command a real emotion? How can you, I can make her say words, but I can't make her feel a certain way. I can't shape that little heart to actually feel remorse. I can't force that. But God is all the time commanding us to feel and act and be a certain way. Love God. Love your neighbor. Be glad. Rejoice. Be happy. These are commands from our God about ways we're supposed to feel on the inside. And it's a bit troubling for me until I realize the good news of this great joy is that God enables all that he commands. By the power of his spirit, our God empowers all that he commands. Every command from our father is a command that he enables. 
Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Jesus displays this for us all the time, all the time. When the paralyzed man is lowered through the roof right in the middle of Jesus' teaching and Jesus looks down at this man who's never walked a day in his life and he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now this man is unable to obey this command except that Jesus empowers all that he commands. And this man gets up, takes up his bed and walks. Miraculously, he's obedient. Or what about maybe the prime example of when Jesus commands someone to do something that they are incapable of doing? Maybe the prime example would be this scenario Lazarus, come out. Why can Lazarus not come out? Because he's what? He's dead. Dead people don't do things. They don't come out of graves. They they just don't. It's the thing about death. It's kind of permanent. But Jesus stands in a graveyard and he better call the man by name or there will be a lot of bodies coming out. (laughs) He calls him by name Lazarus. You come out. And that command has with it, intrinsic in the command, is the power of God for Lazarus, a dead man, to obey. And Jesus enables miraculous obedience to everything he commands. And this is good news for you and I. It's good news for us because Ephesians 2 says, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Jesus Christ. You were dead. You were unable until he commanded it. And when he commanded it, your heart swelled with joy and your life responded in faithful, miraculous obedience to a God who enables all that he commands. I love that. And it makes for me all the more possible to be glad when all the world wants to tell you to be sad or to be angry or to complain or to judge or to be frustrated or to be whatever. God says, rejoice. Paul says it in Philippians 4 this way. We should hear it from the voice of the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. That's the imperative. That's kairos. Rejoice. I'm commanding you, be happy, be glad. Always is what makes that hard, isn't it? Rejoice in the Lord, what? Always. Why is that challenging? It's challenging because not every circumstance tells you to be happy. There are things in life that are a struggle, that are hard. Death is one of them. Losing a job is another. A car breaks down. A child is sick. This, that. There's lots of circumstances that tell us, lose your joy. And God says in the midst of it, I'm commanding you to rejoice. And what he commands, he empowers. But I want to tell you, it's not without a fight. 
you must fight to respond to our God in obedience. Fight for your joy. So I want to tell you there are um, at least four. I want to give you a list, a short list of four joy killers. Four things in this life that will kill your joy. We have an enemy and he's out to steal, kill and destroy you and your joy. And four ways, four things that will kill your joy are these. Not a comprehensive list, just four that were on my heart this week as I prepared to share this with you. So four things. One, fear, worry, anxiety, all that wrapped up in one ball. You cannot simultaneously be fearful and joyful. You're either fearful or you're joyful, but it's not going to be both. So surrender your fears. When this angel comes announcing this good news, he comes with these words first. God broke his silence with these words. He says this, fear not, right? For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Fear not. You know, in the Bible, those words are written 365 times, ironically, once for every day that you need to hear it. Fear not. In this passage, in Luke 2, this angel begins this way, and Jesus consistently teaches us not to worry, not to let anxieties. I wonder what, what has got you anxious? What are you anxious about? Whatever it is, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a longing of your heart. You want to have a child, it's not happening. You want to be married, it's not happening. You, whatever it may be, whatever the anxieties are in your world, the Lord would say to you, fear not. Paul says it this way, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God in Philippians 4, 6. Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. For sufficient for the day is its own worries. And Jesus actually says your worry, your fear will keep you from seeking the kingdom. He puts those two verses back to back. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things that you're worried about, all these things, God will handle it. He'll take care of it. Fear will keep you from seeking the kingdom of God, which will steal your joy. So I want to tell you with the scriptures, fear not. Second thing, second joy killer is sin. Here's the bad news. All of us sin. When you sin, what do you do? You know, different ones of us respond differently. Some of us, um, man, we run into a black hole of... It's like we feel like we need to punish ourselves. We run into a black hole and we just force this kind of like, I'm going to be bitter about this to teach myself a lesson. That is kind of the way the enemy works, just so you know. He's full of doublespeak. So he will come in one ear for you and he will say, it's no big deal. Nobody's looking. Nobody will know. Just, just do this. And as soon as you do, he gets in the other ear and he goes, look what you've done. 
Your sin will steal your joy. And I want to encourage us to run quickly to a Father who loves you. Quickly. Don't don't spend your life in the pig pen like the prodigal. Run quickly. And as you do, you'll find the Father running quickly to you. And He will quickly restore you with joy. David, after he had sinned with Bathsheba and he had gone about this whole cover-up scheme to cover up that she's pregnant, she's another man's wife and I'm in trouble and oh no. Um, Then he kills her husband in, in war and then he's still trying to cover every cover his tracks. He brings her into his home. He calls her his wife. And now he's got this woman as his wife. And this adultery thing has happened. And it's just trouble. And then David, when all of that hits the fan, in Psalm 51, he writes this way. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Why would he need to pray that way? Because his joy had been stolen by his sin. God will honor that prayer. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The third joy killer is grief. You know, if you're not careful when you grieve, um, it can rob you of your joy. I think the reason that happens is because in the midst of looking at the reality of the, the long-range consequences of sin. And I'm not necessarily saying that person is dying because of their sin, although that is true. I'm just saying the result of sin, generally speaking, is all of us die. So when we see a loved one and we lose a loved one, it's the reality that, that sin is still having its effect. But the pain of loss is so incredibly hard. So I... I sort of painted that picture for you last night of being in the hospital room with some dear friends and just watching tears and experiencing that, shedding some tears myself. And I had my wife with me, Lauren's with me, and I look over at her and she's crying. And I'm immediately mindful, as, as a husband knows, there's more to her tears than this moment. You know, she just lost her dad in June to Alzheimer's. And we just went through a very long battle with... Uh, the loss of a loved one, a very young man to die. And I look at my wife and I just see tears of sorrow and I think, man, this is pain. And we get in the car and it's like, how you doing? We're on our way back home. How you doing? You okay, babe? She's like, that was just hard. It's just hard. And it is hard. And I don't want to belittle those moments. What I want to tell you is that joy can rush in in the middle of those moments. And in the middle of those tears, which are so right, there's a kind of joy that can supersede them. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes about it. and He says, listen, church, believer, Christian, we don't grieve the way the world grieves. The world grieves as a people who have no hope. But because we've seen Jesus die and resurrect from the dead, we have a hope that will not disappoint. And so we don't grieve as the world grieves. We do still grieve, but it's not empty grief. It's hopeful grief. And the tears become grief-filled joy. And there's a beautiful way that God weaves our 
our emotions of sorrow and pain in with fulfillment of joy. And I want to encourage you to fight against the joy killer of grief with the truth of the gospel. That Jesus is our only hope. Rest in that. Fourthly, a joy killer that if you're not careful will destroy you is unforgiveness. I want to, with as much grace as I can, caution you not to harbor hurt and bitterness. I think sometimes we think that we are somehow punishing the person who has wronged us. They, they hurt us. I'm going to hurt them by holding these feelings of bitterness. And I want to tell you, it's you that's being hurt by your unforgiveness. It's you that's in bondage. It's you that's in chains. It's you that's imprisoned by your own unforgiveness. And Jesus warns us with some pretty strong warnings in Matthew 6. He says, this is right after the Lord's Prayer. You know, he, 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 he tells us as He's modeled for us how to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And what? Forgive us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Listen to how Jesus is teaching you to pray. He's teaching you to pray this way. God, forgive me just as I forgive them. There's a warning in the middle of that prayer. Do you hear it? Well, if we didn't hear it, this is the only bit of the prayer that Jesus actually takes time to explain afterward. And here's his explanation. Matthew 6, he says, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. And I don't want to soften that for you. I want to just let it rest. Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. So unforgiveness is not only a danger of stealing your joy, but it can destroy you, steal, kill, and destroy so I just want to encourage you. Hebrews 12 warns also against harboring unforgiveness by saying it will create a root of bitterness. I don't know about you, but if you've ever um, had to like, dig up the roots, um, we have these uh, pots on our back porch. They're about this tall, big, big pots, and they've got... My wife loves to put ferns in them, so I put ferns in them every spring. And about now, those ferns are dying. It's because I'm not good at keeping them alive. So they die, and I let them sit in that pot dead for, well, until she wants me to put green ones in there. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, last year, I about broke my back trying to get that fern out of that pot. And you know why? Because it had some serious roots. And I could trim the top off of that thing. I could, I mean, I could clean it up to where the soil looks pretty. But deep in there, I know, and everybody knows, and that soil's no good for anything growing in it because there's this huge root ball of death. And that is what unforgiveness does in your heart. And we're warned in the Scriptures, don't let it happen. Forgive. So the grace that you receive, the chorus that you receive... 
extend it to others. Forgive. Those are four um, joy killers. Fear, sin, grief, unforgiveness. There are more, but those are the ones I felt the Spirit wanted me to caution us about today. I want to give you the secret. I kind of don't like to preach this way, but I want to give you a secret to living a joyful life. I don't, I don't like, when I say I don't like to preach this way, I don't, I don't love giving, taking a topic and giving you like a bunch of how-tos. I'd rather just take a text and walk through it. But I do think this is helpful. I think these are very practical things. So I want you to take your Bibles with me. If you got it, go to John chapter 15. I think this will help you. I think it helps me to be full of joy. In John 15, Jesus is teaching his guys about abiding in him. He's talking to the disciples and he says, um, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And if you abide in me, you'll bear a lot of fruit. You will bear much fruit. Anyone who doesn't abide in me, they're they're not connected. They're they're not going to bear fruit. And he says this, he says, um, for apart from me, you can do nothing. After all of this talk about abiding in Jesus and being connected to Jesus, he gets down to the bottom line in verse 11. In verse 11 of John 15, he says this, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. These things I've spoken to you that my joy, Jesus says, my joy may be in you. And then now, this new joy you've just received, your joy may be full. So I just want to break that down for us just for a minute. Three secrets in that one verse to living a joy-filled life. Here they are. One, it's Jesus' joy. This is Jesus' joy that he's giving to you. So take it on as, as, as his. Take it on as your own. And change in these three ways. You ready? Keep his perspective in mind. How does Jesus have joy? What is Jesus' joy like? Jesus has a joy that obviously has a perspective that's broader than mine and broader than yours. He can see beyond the moment. Do you know your joy can go just like this? And it's when a moment happens that just throws you off. I don't know what it is. Something happens, you know, um, and boom. It's like the, the air's been sucked out of you and your joy can vanish. And it's because it's all happened right there and all you can see is that moment. But if you were able to pull back and have a different perspective, maybe beyond that moment and look at, hmm, What could God be doing through this very difficult thing that's very hard for me? What is God doing? What is this perspective? Jesus was able to maintain his joy because he had a unique perspective. So if you want a joyful, joy-filled life, and I know you do, keep his perspective in mind. The Bible says in Hebrews 12 that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He was able to go through some incredibly hard stuff for joy. 
What kind of joy? It's a joy with a broad perspective. Jesus has unique perspective. We only know what we see. He knows everything. So I want to encourage you. Keep his perspective in mind. You, you know, you can just pray in the moment. I mean, last night, um, this sweet daughter of this man who's um, soon to pass into eternity, this sweet daughter, she just looks at me, tears in her eyes. She says, you know what? This hurts. But I just realized that I, I don't know everything. And I thought to myself, mm, she's keeping it in perspective. That's a helpful reminder. Just call it to mind. You know what? I don't know everything. And so I just rest in the one who does. And that's a way to fight back against that enemy who's trying to suck your joy. Keep his perspective in mind. Keep his purposes in view. We just talked about Jesus enduring the cross with joy. And it's because he knew his purpose. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And he knew the only way to accomplish this task is the death, my death, on that cross. So he kept his purpose in view. Well, your purpose is obviously not the cross. Mine is not either. But your purpose is to glorify your God. Keep it in view. Keep his purposes in view. Third thing, adopt his pleasure. What made Jesus happy? Like what made Jesus joyful? I would, I, I would say to us, we settle for trinkets when God wants to give us great joy. Our problem is not that we're consumed with our own pleasure. It's that we're not consumed with it enough. It's that we're far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis says it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition and while infinite joy is offered to us. We're like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what God means by an offer of holiday at the sea. And C.S. Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. Keep in view... His perspective, keep his purposes in mind and adopt his pleasure. What pleases Jesus? Um, two, two quick illustrations and we'll finish here. All through the Bible, God paints himself as a father. In fact, Jesus prays to him that way. Our father who art in heaven. Jesus talks to him on the cross that way. Father, right? So God paints himself as father and us as children. So this illustration comes right out of that. So I'm a dad to young girls. I got three little girls. Many of you have met them. They're wild and rambunctious and loads of fun. Okay. Um, and I love, 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 love. I'm daddy who loves when we're separated for a couple of hours, maybe a couple of days. And they see daddy coming. <laughs> it's like the most amazing thing happens. This little heart just wells up with joy and those little feet go to move and those arms come up and they start running to me. Daddy, you know, and they run toward me. And I'm telling you, as a father, it just, mm, 
it makes my day for my children to find their joy in Daddy. Think about that parallel on a a cosmic scheme. Our God is our Father. It makes His day for us to come running to Him like Daddy with joy in our heart. Oh, Dad, I can't wait to be with you. Or use this illustration. All through the Bible, God calls Himself the husband and we, His church, are His bride. I want you to think, men, I'm going to talk to you for just a minute. Women, you know this is true, so I just got to sell them in on it. (laughs) Men, in your marriage, your own pleasure comes from pleasing your wife. Your joy as a husband comes from being the fulfillment and the happiness of your wife. Her joy is your joy. Right, guys? Amen? Your wife's joy is your joy as a husband. Women, that's the way we work. It's just the way it works. And it's because God made us in His image. And He's a great husband and we are His bride. Our joy is His joy. So here's the reality. We are all seeking happiness and joy and God wants for all of us the deepest, truest, fullest happiness. The only problem is we're looking in the wrong places. So I encourage you this morning. Go to God and find fullness of joy in Him.